0: Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you for joining us today. Um, We are recording again on Friday. Uh, This is Friday the 8th, no, 19th. Friday the 19th of November. Um, We are one day post-Julius Jones commutation and slightly one week prior to Thanksgiving. Um, And I can only imagine the Jones family will be celebrating a little bit differently this year now, uh, joining me, of course, today is my co-host, Dr. Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? Scott, it's good to see you. Thanks for uh, inviting me into your home to record today. Yeah, you know, I'm glad
1: you're here. I'll tell you, I'm a little scared of me in your house. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a little <laughs> frightened because you know we've been doing this show now for something like three years, uh, but I was not aware until recently <laughs> that when I sit across the table from you, I'm sitting across the table from a partisan political mercenary. And, and I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like someone I should be afraid of. It sounds like someone who gets paid a lot more than I do. <laughs> I'm totally honest. Partis- uh, Partis- partisan political mercenary is, uh, is uh, that's, quite the, that's quite the title.
0: I, I would say, it could be argued that I'm a bipartisan political mercenary. in that um, That some of my work spans the political continuum Maybe it's it's not necessarily nonpartisan. It's we'll say transpart omnipartisan. Cross I cross, love cross omni-partisan. partisan. omni-partisan. Omni-partisan
1: gives you an aura of all powerfulness as well. Well so
0: if there's one thing I have, it's complete power. <laughs> uh, <the> omni. <laughs> omni omni an
1: omnipartisan political mercenary. So that yeah. sounds that sounds nice. But no, no, I'm uh I'm doing well. You know, good things Guess there's some good things happening. Uh as of today, the FDA has approved uh, uh, boosters, Pfizer, Moderna boosters for all adults. And I believe the CDC has now officially concurred with that recommendation. So if you are an adult over the age of 18 and you are six months past your uh, second coronavirus vaccination, you are now eligible to go get a third uh, coronavirus vaccination. And that is a good thing. And it's a good thing because there has been a 135% increases in, in COVID cases in Oklahoma. Over the last week, yeah. uh, hospitalizations are ticking up, um, um, uh, deaths are ticking up as well. Um, the, winter, the winter surge, there's going to be a winter surge. Mm-hmm. It has arrived, and uh, as has been the case for about 11 months now, um, the best way to protect yourself and those you love uh, is to get vaccinated, so if you haven't. Please, please, please! I'll quote Lennon and McCartney there. Please, please, please! Go get your vaccine.
0: That's that's how the song went. I think there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got my booster a week ago today um, and feel great. I was had a sore arm and felt uh, a little blah for about two hours. Took some ibuprofen and rallied. So, and I got Moderna in case people are curious. That's so, the one I've had for all three shots.
1: Uh, one thing that is actually interesting. Uh, so the, they have also given the go ahead to the. Uh, The kind of the mix and match, the shoots and ladders version of the vaccine. (laughs) Um, So if you originally got Pfizer, you can get a booster with Moderna. If you originally got Moderna, you can get a booster with Pfizer. Uh, And actually, if you got Johnson & Johnson, you can get either one. Um, I will say, if you got Johnson & Johnson, I would absolutely recommend that you get uh, another dose uh, from one of the mRNA vaccines. Um, There could be
0: an effort to give boosters to people in second and third floor apartments. It would be called shots and ladders.
1: Oh, that's not, that's solid. We should, uh, you know what? I'm going to,
0: can we write that down on our idea journal?
1: Yeah, there we go.
0: <laughs> I like the idea that we have an idea journal. We do. <laughs> the thing is, it, we do. It's not a joke. <laughs> that's, right. that's true. We do. It's under the, whole, the heading secret project. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, it is uh, a big deal. And I, just to reframe, because Scott, you said 135%, which is correct. Also, just to reframe that though that 's double right a hundred up a hundred percent means it doubled, yeah um, and then thirty five so it 's doubled and then another third on top of that yeah uh, it 's funny is that I saw not funny, not funny, haha, uh-huh, but I did see earlier in the week uh, a, a graphic from the state of Michigan about the surge up there, and it looks like they're a couple of weeks ahead of us, probably, yeah. which makes sense, colder climate, more indoors, all that and I was like oh man that's not good and I almost sent it to you and I didn't for whatever reason and then I don't think I did but anyway I saw the other day when that our rates are going up and that we were had the highest rate of increase in the country yeah. and so I texted a uh, friend of the pod former oklahoman now Michigander, grant herms right and I said man we beat you again you guys going to have to keep trying up there and he was like it's so bad man um, Plus, Michigan had that big outbreak of the flu yeah. at the University of Michigan campus, yeah. uh, so, which, again, you can prevent with flu
1: shots. So just for some some real numbers, and this is data, this is data that's coming from the New York Times uh, COVID dashboard. Uh, so this is for Oklahoma. This is for all counties in Oklahoma. On November the 11th, 2021, our seven-day average was 437 cases. Uh, that would be, uh, I think, seven days ago, right, eight days ago, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, Uh, November the 18th. Well, that would be November the 18th. They've not updated yet for today. Uh, The New York Times' is November 18th seven-day average is 992. So 437 to 992.
0: So uh, that's basically 1,000 new people every day. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's not great, Bob.
1: Not great, Bob. It's not great.
0: No, indeed. All right, listeners, if you haven't got your booster, please do so. Also... And for the love,
1: if you haven't gotten your first shot, please do that, too.
0: Right. Also, how did you listen to us for a whole year... Uh, bitch about this every week and not, <laughs> not mean, get your shot.
1: That is a very
0: reasonable If question. you didn't get your shot, let us know. We're going to come over, put a bag over your head, and take you somewhere for a shot. Uh, and then, obviously, I, I think it bears mentioning that, you know, the normal things. Wash your hands, wear masks when you can, you know, like in you're in public. If you haven't had COVID recently, you've probably had this non-COVID, non-STREP, sinus infection that's going around dude it's freaking miserable and everybody's got it yeah i mean my my daughter had it my wife has had it for two weeks she stayed home from work several days which she never does um she went to the doctor you know a couple of times had three covid tests and the doctor basically at the end was just like yep here's some antibiotics. you know keep waiting drink do a sinus wrench uh do do those kind of things sinus sinus rinse (laughs) I had a new patient
1: today. This older lady, and uh, I, I, she was there with her son, and I walked in the room. And as I'm walking in the room, she's like coughing up a lung, and I'm like, "Hi, what's going on? How you know how how are you?" She's like, "Oh, I'm I'm doing pretty good." I was like, "How long have you how long you had that cough?" And she told me it's to been for you know several days, and she went to urgent care earlier this week. And I said, "Did they did they check for COVID?" And she's like, "No, I, I don't I don't think so." And her son was like. I mean, she, was, she went to the urgent care, but she didn't, they, I don't think they swabbed her. She didn't really have any COVID symptoms. And I was like, "Besides a cough. <laughs> she, she just about hacked up, like, <laughs> she's, I was like, you mean you mean other than that cough? And he was like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. It? <laughs> that is, that a cough is, in fact, a COVID symptom. Yeah. I don't know what it was, though. She literally didn't cough the whole rest of the time I was in the room. So maybe it's be, just you. Maybe it's a one-off. A Melson allergy. I mean, some people have it. Yeah, that's true.
0: Um, Speaking of things I'm allergic to, let's talk about redistricting. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds nice. (laughs) I like what you did there. And uh, So earlier today, today's, as we said, Friday, uh, the Senate passed the congressional maps. The House passed it earlier this week. So as I think I mentioned last week, uh, this week a special session. They came in. They left. It's all done. uh, And they did exactly what we expected them to Monday was first reading of the bills in each chamber, Tuesday was committees in each chamber, Wednesday was floor in each chamber, and the bills crossed, and also then first reading in the opposite chamber. Thursday, committees in opposite chamber, and Friday today was floor in opposite chamber. Uh, All the bills passed, well, the, the, the House map, the Senate map, and the congressional map all passed. Um, and are headed to the governor's desk. Along the way, some other things happened. Um, The Senate caucus, in both the House and the Senate, um, held a press conference on Monday at which they announced they were filing some bills in special session that were directed at redistricting. So that was within the purview of the call. Um, One bill was an alternative congressional map. It turns out the Democrats... Like my map uh, that we had submitted and, and proposed that. They said, this is a better map, which I agree. Um, they didn't draw their own, so that was, uh, I think by de facto existence then, like there was the Republican map and the other map, which was happened to be ours, and thus got co-opted or co-branded by the Democrats. I'm honored that any politician thought our map was good because we didn't ask any politicians for input, so that's fair. Uh, that map didn't go anywhere. And then also Representative Andy Fugate from Del City proposed a bill that would create an independent redistricting commission. And I don't know, Scott, if you saw his, the press conference or saw his comments about it, but I thought he was spot on. I mean, he, he said, listen, like, uh, we should not be a part of this. Like, this process has been better than in the past, but still not great. The outcome certainly leaves something to be desired. What we should do is send this to a vote of the people, because it was a joint resolution, right? Send it to a vote of the people to let them approve it to be an independent commission that would be used in 10 years from now and for the next time. Uh, Because I guess virtually no one who's in office right now will be there the next time they draw maps, and certainly not when those maps go into effect. Yeah,
1: you know, and it's, I want to say a couple things, a couple things about process. So first, um, you know, as we're sitting here talking about, you know, the legislature approving the maps and looking forward to session, I think it'd be really cool if we could put a button on the soundboard, which is just somebody saying, those bastards. <laughs> and then we can just we can just press that. On, our, on
0: our soundboard? On here. our soundboard,
1: yeah. <laughs> we can just press it whenever we feel like it's appropriate, because I would have depressed it several times. Um, you know, I think talking about talking about uh, the the process you know representative Martinez and and Senator Paxson you know they've made they have kept repeating over and over and over and leadership has echoed this that this process has been the most transparent in state history in terms of how they came up with the maps. And I think that, to their credit, I think that there are elements of that statement that is true. They had a number of town halls. They made these town halls. They were available to attend in person or over Zoom. The public was allowed to submit maps. They published maps that were submitted by the public. There was a ton of public comment, um, or at least a ton of opportunity for public comment, prior to the actual conduction, the actual drawing of the maps. Yeah, they did it a year ago. Yeah, yeah. However... It was a big semicolon, right? This is not comma, however. This is semicolon, however, like it's a new clause. You know how much opportunity there was for public comment after they proposed, after they, after they showed the map that they had drawn that they intended to uh, adopt into law? How much, Scott? That'd be zero. That's over. There was no public comment allowed or solicited or accepted after they had made their map public. And every time that was brought up, and it was brought up to, to Senator Paxton and representative Martinez several times and said well well we just, that's not really the time for that you know it's, we've, we've we've we asked for public input but basically their response was we get to draw the maps we asked for the public's input the public gave us input we've done our job we drew the maps that we wanted and we don't have to ask the public what they think about them
0: you know it's even uh, more egregious since we're uh, since we're bitching about this, t- today in the and there are, uh, I'll say, dueling op-eds, right? One's from me, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, the other one is from uh, T.W. Shannon, right? Former Speaker of the House. And was he in Congress, too? Uh, no, he was never in Congress. Okay, just former Speaker of the Oklahoma House. Yeah. And, uh, and someone who was paid by the legislature, this does not get mentioned often, right? That he was actually paid $6,250 a month for, I don't know how long, the last year and a half, two, however long we've been working on this, two and a half years, that's more money than I make. That's a lot of money. Uh, taxpayer money, but it's not disclosed because it's from the Legislative Services Bureau, so it's not subject to open records. Their slush fund. That's right. Exactly right. So anyway, he his op-ed, the title of it was something like Democrats uh, Hate Maps and Hate People in Rural Areas or something along those lines. It was it was pretty, you can look it up now, it's pretty egregious. Uh, and. And just honestly comical. Like he tries to lay blame on the Democrats and I think on on me on and people not politicians, which is a, I will say, shout out to all of our volunteers for people not politicians. There have been hundreds of people that have put in hours of time over the last two and a half years, put in their hard-earned money um, to donate it to, to fund this movement uh, and for them to dismiss them as... One out of state people, two people who hate people in rural areas. I, uh, if I could go, I may go around and get permission from all of our rural volunteers to let me put their name on a letter and send it to them because it's just rude, right? Like you absolutely should do that. They, uh, and I think they. I, in fact, I had a call today uh, with the gentleman in Muskogee talking about the maps and how dissatisfied he is. Um, with how it turned out. His district's fine. It's not changing. The second district is what it is, but he uh, was really upset with the process and the the final outcome.
1: Yeah, T.W. Shannon's op-ed is titled, uh, Do Democrats Hate the Maps or the People in Rural Areas?
0: (laughs) Uh. It's going to be real funny, Scott, if in a few years, uh, you know, Congressman Lucas or Cole retire uh, and... Someone from the metro area runs and wins their seat, right under mm. these new maps, I mean because there's a good chance that it, could absolutely happen. Congressional district one, three, four, and five could all be represented by someone who lives in either Oklahoma City or Tulsa metros, and which is not good. I'm not advocating for that um, I, the the beauty of our map, the people's map, as you will, is that it Ensured that it kind of protected that. Now some of the suburbs had to be in there because that's that's how the population falls. But um, you would not have any anyone from the urban core, we'll say, of Oklahoma City, except for the fifth district. Uh, and so, of course, the flip side is true as well, is that under the map that they have they have adopted, both metro areas could. Be controlled by uh, a member of Congress who does not live in the metro area. Mm-hmm. More difficult in the first district by Tulsa because they, they made that district more compact. But um, but someone out in like rural Wagner County could still uh, could still serve in that seat.
1: Uh, the uh, legislature was not the uh, not the only crew in town that passed some ginned up maps this week. Um, oh, the yeah. Oklahoma Oklahoma Board of County Commissioners met yesterday and uh, adopted a new map. They had a meeting earlier this week where uh, a, a proposed map, a proposed map was put forward um, that would pretty dramatically alter the borders of the current congressional districts. So, county, county commissioner districts. Ca- yes, uh, county commissioner districts. Thank you. Um, um, that would have, have essentially dramatically reduced the uh, the square, uh, the the area and road mileage for district. One right yep. Yep. Um, dramatically expanded the uh, road mileage and uh, 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 square mileage for District Three, uh, and then made some changes to, to District Two. Um, uh, there was quite some outcry. District Three, currently represented by Kevin Calvi, District One represented by Carrie Blumert, um, and District Two represented by Brian Mon. Um, what these maps would have done in their proposed form on Monday. Because the county commissioner's funding is divided up by road miles, District 1 would have ended up with 60 road miles, District 3 would have ended up with like 320 road miles, mm-hmm. and District 2 would have had about 180 miles. Right now... Each district has about 200 road miles, and they split the funding equally. So this would have resulted in a dramatic reduction in funding for District One, a dramatic increase in funding for District Three, and left District Two roughly the same, slightly less than it is now. The reasoning for this map uh, apparently had, had nothing to do with trying to, uh, you know, uh, 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 punish Carrie Bloomer at first, dating up to Kevin Calvey for numerous things. And it had, there's 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 no reason to think that that was the reason for this proposed map. Um, Um, Mr. Calvi, who again said that he had nothing to do with the drawing of the maps and that it doesn't benefit him anyway because he's running for DA, which isn't terrifying at all. Um, uh, He said this was to essentially uh, try and... to, to, to try and create a map that would create... not create, maintain communities of interest by which he means people of color um, in Oklahoma's uh, Oklahoma City's southwest side and northeast side, um, uh, casually ignoring the fact that it would dramatically drain resources from that district. Right. Um, um, Commissioner Mon and Commissioner Bloomer actually pushed back pretty hard on this. Commissioner Bloomer, in particular, they adjourned and uh, kind of said they would come up with some alternatives. Can I amend yes. that? So I attended
0: the meeting on Monday. But why but am I talking about this? I don't know. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's nice hearing about it. Um, it, w- it was a good meeting. So they had, uh, they had Keith Beal, who's the Senate staffer yeah. who ran redistricting. They outsourced the map drawing to the state legislature rather than doing it with their own staff. Which is what they normally do, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, they could have just done it yeah. um, and probably saved people's time and money. Sure. But they'd like to have things align right, and do it behind closed doors because, again, if the legislature does it, we can't know about it because it's not open to open records. Uh-huh. So uh, so Keith zoomed in to the county commissioner's meeting, presented the map that he drew according to how he was instructed. But then they did some live tweaking. So Commissioner Bloomer was like, well, what about this and that? So her and Mon kind of went back and forth. Calvi was very quiet. Um, and And... Then they asked Keith to redraw some things, so he did it in kind of real time, which I thought was fascinating because it proves it can be done. You could have drawn the congressional map the same way, right? Have a public meeting, have discussion, do it right there together. But they didn't. So anyway, they they did that. They developed kind of, uh, so that's a second option, which became Commissioner Blumert's proposal, and then they discussed and made a few tweaks to a third option that became Commissioner Mann's proposal, which was... In the end, the one that was adopted
1: adopted three to zero. Commissioner Bloomer was not uh, certainly not happy with it. I think she liked the map that she proposed better, but yeah, it became uh, clear that was not going to be an option. Okay,
0: okay. well, here's a, another thing about this map. And this is this is which one? The Bloomer map or the Mon map? The Mon map. Yeah. Um, is Oh, that, I know what you're going to
1: say and it's bullshit.
0: Yeah his his aunt died last year and left him a house up in Quail Creek, which is like at 122nd in May ish, yeah. right? And so he inherited this house. He's been renovating it. Um, and he discussed this in the meeting. I mean, it was rumored, and then he was like, I'm just going to address it. Yes, this happened. My aunt died. I got this house. I've been renovating it. I'd like to move there, so I'd like it to be in my district so I can move without having to and stay in its district if possible. And he was like, but I'm okay if it doesn't. And But that's how it ended up, right? Of course. Yeah. And I, and I left the meeting thinking, wait a second. So we are, we're drawing county commissioner lines... Because this guy happened to inherit a house, yeah. right? Like, what if he had inherited that house next year? Right. Well, he couldn't have moved because he would have been out of his district. And so it's just a bullshit right. thing. Well, and not only, not only this, it,
1: uh, it's just like he kept, he kept saying, I've inherited this house and I would like to live there. No one is stopping you from living in this house that you own and have been renovated. What you want is to live in this house and continue to represent District 2 on the Oklahoma City Council or the Oklahoma uh, Board of County, the Oklahoma County Board of County Commissioners, right? Right. That is what you want. Right. You don't, you, it's like, you know, we were having a conversation about this right before we came on the show. You want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to live in this house right. where, that was bequeathed to you, yeah. um, which we should all be so lucky, right? But like, you should live in this house that was given. You want to live in this house that was given to you, but you also don't want to have to give up any of these other things that are important to you, right? right? You want to you so and like the idea that that is like what we're using to draw the districts is just like. But this isn't new. You know this better than me, right? What is the primary goal? In every legislative body, like, what is What's what is job number one when they're drawing new maps?
0: Protect the incumbents.
1: Protect incumbents, right? Yeah. Which means that if somebody moves and I have to move the lines that so that person can run again, that's what they do, right? And, like, that is just, I mean, there should be a law that says you, like, you cannot take that into account, right? Like, there should be a law that says you can't do that. <laughs> There's a
0: law that's been proposed in Congress. <laughs> they just have not, uh, not got there, so. You know. So well, anyway, that's uh, so we ended up with the compromise map, essentially, yes. right?
1: Um, so, anyway, I don't. Do we have the Do we have the those bastards button yet?
0: We don't no, have that right yet. No. We can anyway, those bastards. There, there you go. go. We'll just, <laughs> I'll I'll edit that out. and then we'll, we'll use it. We should make a funny voice of it though. Like, those bastards. Yeah, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, also, I guess this was this week. I think it was earlier in the week. Uh, there's, and we may have talked about this in a previous episode, but there's a, there's a federal vaccine mandate for the military, which applies to all branches of the military, including the Coast Guard and the National Guard. Uh, the National Guard happens to be based in states. Uh, now, of course, here in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt said, no way. These are, these are my troops. <laughs> they don't have to be vaccinated. With a couple of pro quos on that like they don't have to be vaccinated uh, I mean unless they're in federal service they get called up or they're doing anything federal or they're traveling outside the state so it's like if you're the National Guard and you stay within state boundaries he thought you don't have to do it now the uh, Department of Defense had Dis- disagrees with that <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> they said you know uh, uh, listen uh, Honorable Governor J. Kevin Stitt J. Kevin Stitt Uh, actually they're part of the military and part of the readiness is that they're vaccinated against a whole slew of things, including (laughs) anthrax and all kinds of bullshit that you and I are not vaccinated against. Um, And they got to be vaccinated against COVID because what if in your state there in Oklahoma, which is prone to natural disasters of various sorts, what if they have to be activated and they are not ready, right? Or they get activated and then COVID works its way through the unit and... uh, Really knocks out a bunch of troops. You're in dire straits. So there's been this back and forth, but it sounds like Scott. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like where it landed is the the federal government has said you have to do
1: it. The federal government has said that you have to do it, but I don't know. I don't know that that's the end of the saga, right? No,
0: and the deadline isn't until sometime next year. Yeah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the fed, the feds said that. My understanding, and this gets into like. I think, you know, all kind of, like, uh, chain of command and, like, Article 32 stuff that I don't know anything about. But um, from from what I have read, DOD has said, yes, they have to do it. And if you don't do it, then because they will not be maintaining an optimal state of readiness, then they would no longer technically be part of the National Guard. They would just become like a state, a state milit- militia. Oh, right. Great, cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but what I don't know though is if that happens, would they lose their funding? Because well, a big chunk of the National Guard's funding comes from the feds, right? so
0: I think it's maybe almost maybe entirely, all from the feds. yeah, they yeah. are a branch of the military. And in fact, I was listening to uh one of the other excellent podcasts about Oklahoma politics this week in Oklahoma politics mm-hmm. yep. with uh, Ryan Kitzel and yep. Eva Hill on KOSU. You should all support public radio, by the way. Anyway, Neva said the same thing. She's like, their funding comes from the feds and at the end of the day, like, they are a branch of the United States military funded by the United States government. It's pretty clear they have to comply. And also, what happens if they don't? I mean, like, to individual troops. And it really is like a readiness issue, I think. Not this. And the
1: thing is, we have, I think, we have 6,000 National Guard troops in Oklahoma, something like that. Um, and we're talking about like like 9% of them who don't want to get the vaccine right, right? so this is like like you know like all of the like all the vaccine like litigation we're t- we're not talking about like a huge group of people you know and the other thing about the vaccine mandates every you know i was talking with somebody this week who's uh, their their company has not their company they're they're not federal contractors and they they have not um, implemented a mandate for for them yet but if they're going to, and the guy I was talking to, who has himself fully vaccinated and supports the vaccine, he was like, my issue is just like, if we do this, like, like how many people are we going to lose over this? And I said, honestly, not very many, right? right? Like, it's been shown in circumstances that, like, you know, all these people threatened they were going to leave America, uh, United Airlines. They Like, United Airlines lost like two, like 1% one, one of their workforce something right. like that. There were like, you know, the New York City Fire Department said, we're going to lose 10,000 firefighters. They lost 34, Right. right? Like, the only thing that happens when you mandate vaccines is more people get vaccinated. I saw a patient in clinic uh, a week ago today, I think, who, like, really didn't want the vaccine, really didn't want it. He and I had a long talk at a visit earlier this year. He still didn't want it. He wasn't going to get it. The federal mandate came down. He works as a federal contractor. So he was like, I really don't want to do it. It really kind of irritates me that President Biden says I have to do it and he looked at me and goes, but this is also the best job I've ever had. Right. I don't
0: really want to start over, so I got the shot. I was like, yeah, right. Well, and (laughs) Scott, I will admit, I don't think I've ever admitted this to you, but uh, I was not always a, I didn't always get my flu shot, right? I just would kind of write it off and be like, ah, I probably should, but I just don't want to. Yeah. And then when I was working in healthcare, employees had to, and they would put a little sticker on your name badge, and even then, I was like, eh, we'll just see about it. But then they were like, they upped the ante and said, listen, like, you work in a clinic with people that have compromised immune systems. You should get it for you. You should get it for them. You should get it for your kids. And if you don't get it, that's fine. But you have to wear a mask the whole flu season, which is like half the year. And as a manager, I was like, I've got to set a good example for my, yeah. my employees and for my colleagues, right? And for our patients who we trying to vaccinate against, you know, various things. And and it, I realized I was just being stubborn. And so I, I think when I started there, I didn't get it the first year or two until they started, like, requiring it. And then I was like, all right. And it has been a complete non-issue. Like, it's so easy to go to Walgreens, fill the paper, sit behind the little half wall, get your shot, go home. I don't know anything about being stubborn. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Your Not wife's Scott. Your wife's in the other room. We can ask her about. <laughs> uh, she
1: might have things to say about that. That's entirely possible. All right. So that's uh, that's redistricting, COVID update, the National Guard. What else is in the news this week?
0: Well, Scott, we can. I think we should spend just a few minutes talking about um, how everything went down with Julius Jones.
1: Definitely. You know, I think um, I'm sure everybody listening to the show is uh, is aware. Um, the, the deadline was yesterday, Julius Jones was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection at in McAllister at four o'clock yesterday. Um, as of yesterday morning, all signs were that, uh, the execution was going to go through. Um, uh, Julius Jones's legal team had filed for an emergency, some kind of something, an emergency, an, an emergency something, uh, in, uh, and I think federal court. Uh, basically challenging the constitutionality of the lethal injection protocol, uh, given what happened three weeks ago. Um, however, before that argument, uh, you know, before that, before that order was dealt with uh, at something like 11:55 mm-hmm. uh, yesterday morning, uh, Governor Stitt announced that he <coughs> had decided to uh, commute uh, Julius Jones's sentence to uh, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, it was a very, it was a very interesting. The order was very interesting. The way that the executive order, the way that it, the way that it was drafted, because he made a point of saying, um, "Yes, I have decided to, I have decided to uh, com- commute the sentence," but he also went through and said, "On the condition that Julius Jones is basically never allowed to seek any further kind of relief, he can't ask for another sentence commutation, he can't ask for a pardon, he can't ask for a parole." He also went out of his way to say. That the pardon and parole board had overstepped their authority by recommending that Julius Jones's sentence be commuted to life without life with the possibility of parole. Apparently, the pardon and parole board is not allowed to make recommendations for re, is not allowed to make recommendations regarding parole for patients who have been sentenced either to death or patients to people who have been sentenced either to death or to life without the possibility of parole. They're not allowed to make re, uh, recommendations for parole, and the governor. Made a point of kind of calling them out for having done that um, in his executive order. Um, uh, lots of talk from Julius Jones's legal team uh, yesterday about kind of what the next steps are. Of course, I think you know. I think everyone's initial reaction was just um, thanks and being uh, and grateful um, about uh, about the the commutation itself. Um, However, you know a lot of questions like, okay, well, what, what happens next? Um, it is true um, that the governor, the governor does have the power uh, to place conditions uh, upon uh, uh, sentence commutations. Like that is, that is something that he has the ability to do. And so, um, it seems that the governor placing those conditions on. on on Julius Jones and his order that does have the force of law and would stand unless it's modified by a governor in the future. However, and this is a legal question that I don't know the answer to, I don't know, unless there is a change in Oklahoma law, I don't know that his sentence can be modified further in the future. Um, Because to be considered for a pardon, I think you have to not be in jail. You have to not be in prison. Right. You can't be pardoned while you're still in prison. Right. And he will never be out of prison, so he will never be eligible to be considered for a pardon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the par- he he can't apply for another. He can't apply for another sentence commutation to the pardon and parole board. And even if he did, he was sentenced to death, and then sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And so they're not allowed to recommend parole in those instances. So if I, I'm I, I'm sure there are very smart lawyers who have an idea of what right. the strategy could be here, but from the outside looking in, it would seem that there would have to be a change in state law um, for further steps to be taken. Right. Well, I
0: mean, at least a change in administrative rules, which has to be approved by, by the, the legislature. legislature. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I. Um, I mean, I think you know we're not gonna not to go over this as much. I think Oklahomans and probably most of our listeners have already spent enough energy. Um, on this issue this week, um, and you know, my heart goes out to literally everybody involved, yeah. right? To Julius yeah. Jones and his family, to Paul Howells', Howell's family. Um, as as I've tried to say gingerly on on Twitter, right? Like, murder is not the way for any of this, yeah. right? Like, it breaks my heart for everyone that, that's killed, and. I am, you know, there's been a lot of people that have texted me, and I'm sure probably you, and asked, like, what can we do to get rid of the death penalty? We're yeah. one of just a handful of countries that still have it. Yeah. And those other countries are not the folks you want to be running with. Yeah. North Korea, Iran, those, you know, yeah. rough places. Uh, and it's arguably barbaric that the United States still has it. And I, you know, I, I grew up as someone who was pro-death penalty because it made sense. Eye for an eye, you know, you killed someone, you should die. But then you think about it, it's like, well, it's different because it is it is it is us collectively as a state, as a nation, choosing to use our our collective tax dollars to, to end the life of somebody else um, when they could be punished, right? It's about retribution, not about punishment necessarily. And that's about vengeance and not about punishment. I think that's a very different thing. And that's something I've understood more and more as I've gotten older. Scott, what do you, given the profile of this and given the profile of the last execution which did not go well and the pardon and parole board has already recommended against execution for the next one that's scheduled do you think that this is going to have any impact on the oklahoma electorate so that in our state we might be moving towards ending the death penalty i i
1: think i think it's a long way off but i think it's possible you know um i i you know There's a a local, local, uh, local pollster and political, political... Mercenary. Mercenary. You can, you, you guys are brethren, you're you're brethren, so you can call a mercenary. I can call a mercenary. We've got jackets. Um, You know, Pat McFerrin, he released a a poll from his his group a few weeks ago that said Oklahomans maintain strong support for the death penalty, and that's true. However, as we both know, so many of the answers in polling depend on the questions that you ask. Mm -hmm. If you poll Oklahomans and say, would you rather have the death penalty or would you rather have the strongest sentence? If, if you maintain life without the possibility of parole, um, instead of the death penalty, death penalty support drops to like something like 52%. Mm-hmm. right? So the support among the, for, for the death penalty in Oklahoma is certainly stronger than it is most places, but it's not like there's some overwhelming majority of Oklahomans who think this is the best thing to do. I think the other thing is I think that this is actually a, a place where you could potentially, you could potentially have some common ground between Democrats and Republicans, right? Because there are certainly, I think, moral ethical reasons um, to, to want to abolish the death penalty, right, like should the state be, you know, should, should the state be the business of killing people? Um, is this vengeance or is it justice? There's all these kinds of philosophical questions. However, you can actually look, you can ignore all of that and, and I think actually make a very strong policy case to conservatives um, about why this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't deter crime, right? That's There's data that shows it doesn't deter crime. Um, it's more expensive to execute someone than it is to incarcerate them. Um, it ignores the possibility for rehabilitation. Like there's there is no good policy argument for maintaining capital punishment except that, well, we just feel like for some crimes it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, and, and that's and that's fine. And that, well, that's the problem, right? Is that it's we are trying to solve an emotional problem with intellectual solutions. Right.
1: Right. But I think that there's ground. I think that there's ground there. Um, maybe not now, but I think that the the ground is fertile for, you know, a a solution that both is more effective and more humane in the future. I mean, I'll tell you, I you know um, I was literally sitting at this exact spot <laughs> where I'm sitting now yesterday. I was um, um, the third Thursday of the month. I have this like endless litany of meetings before and after my, my clinic in the afternoon. And, and I had come home after my second morning meeting to have some lunch to let the dog out. Um, and I was sitting here. I was texting you with one hand. I was holding a sandwich with the other hand. And I was watching News 5, um, KOCO live, um, as the word came out and I am, I was unaware, I think until that point, how much this had been weighing on me, Mm -hmm. like the just immense sense of relief. I felt that we're not going to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, it really just like, it was like, there was this like weight that was lifted. And the thing that I was thinking about for most of the rest of the day was just like,
0: holy
1: shit. Like if that is how it felt. For me, who is, I mean, I'm, I yeah, was middle not a, middle
0: class white guy, not connected to the not not
1: connected to the case, not involved at all. You know, I like many people, I had I'd called the governor, I had sent some tweets. You know, um, Ashley and I had gone to the the rally uh, the weekend before, but thinking about um, the the folks like like JB, like CC Jones Davis, you know, Pastor Scoby. Um, I mean, the people that have been. Yeah, Jess, Eddie, um, the people that have been working on this for years, and then, and then even more than that, you know, Julius's family. Um, I literally cannot imagine what they felt like yesterday.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Some of the photos coming out of McAllister uh, that people like Nathan Poppy took that I saw online were really powerful. Yeah. Um, I think also, Scott, one of the really powerful stories to me was the response of. Uh, our youth right of, of yeah. students who walked out of school on Wednesday and Thursday uh, and many schools closed on Thursday because their attendance was so low that they everyone they went to the Capitol and so one of those examples is John Marshall High School which is where Julius Jones attended um, and uh, one of their students uh, organized a, a walk out there uh, on Wednesday and spread that the instructions to other schools and so they did it they the, the instructions were we're gonna leave the school at 11 a.m go to the football field and stand in silence for 22 minutes right and uh and they sent flyers she sent flyers to other schools and it really spread around the state but you know social media cell phones and yeah. everyone knows someone at another school and it uh, expanded pretty quick and so you had you had school districts from john marshall you had people in deer creek you had people in bethany you had people you know all across the the state that were doing this and it was really powerful, and so um, it was. I mean, it was.
1: It was a. Gr- and I. I mean, you know, I've told you this. I'm a very, I don't know what the right word is. A sensei, I guess I'm a sensei. I mean, you know, good. You know, good movie art, whatever. Like I, I very easily like get misty eyed. Oh, yeah. Um yeah. But that uh, that happened yesterday. Watching yesterday and Wednesday. Yeah. Um, seeing high schoolers from all across the state. It was just like, you know, and I and I said something about this on Twitter. Like, um, there are lots of times. Where it is very easy to feel like that there is no point to the work that like you and I try to do. That it takes, it's all this time and it's all this energy and it's just hopeless and there's never going to be any progress. And then you see thousands and thousands of high schoolers like stepping up, walking out of school, and saying we're not okay with this. And it made me feel like, you know what, like things are gonna be all right. Yeah. Yeah. Like things are gonna be all right.
0: Well, I think it, you know. If you are a 17, 18 year old and you've been watching this or you know, even however old you've been seeing this, this hopefully is a experience that yeah. changes you. Uh, and so we earlier today, Scott, I um, had the chance to visit with uh, the young woman who was the organizer of the walkout at John Marshall. Um, and also a, a parent from Deer Creek Schools um, who's uh, involved with the uh, um, PLAC, Parent Legislative Action Committee just a group of parents that have taken upon themselves to be civically engaged here. Uh, and so we're gonna, we'll cut over to that. Let's, let's listen to that conversation now. Joining us is Alasia Smith. Uh, Alasia is a junior at John Marshall High School and was the student who organized the walkout there this week. Hi, Alasia. Hi. Thanks for being here.
2: Of course, of course.
0: Uh, also joining us is Erin Brewer. Erin is a parent in the Deer Creek School District and she's also involved with the Parent Legislative Action Committee. Is that the right
3: That's correct. Phrase? Yep. PLAC That's okay. As- yeah, or PLAC or PLAC, all of those names. There
0: we go. Well, thanks for being here, Erin.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Alasia, I want to start with you. So you organized the walkout at John Marshall High School. Um, tell me a little bit about where did you get the idea and and how did you go about even doing that
2: so i just got a little inspired by hearing his case i was i've always been involved for the years that has been going pretty around and I got to listen to his story I heard his story and it really touched me especially since he is a John Marshall alumni and he walked our halls so prior a week before the walkouts I just got really inspired and I said well somebody has to use their voice if no one and so I was willing to risk it all so not only my school but I reached out to all schools sent the flyer to as many schools as possible and I said hey We're gonna walk out in honor of Julius at eleven. We're gonna go to our home football fields and have a twenty-two minutes of silence. I let them know that a lot of things are on the line, but the things on the line aren't comparable to Julius's life.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Now, did you did you have help in your own school? Like, did you have recruit your friends to help out? Did you have any support from administration or teachers that were kind of helping you and getting the word out on this?
2: Um. No, there was no teacher support. It was strictly student-led. I'm so sorry. That's a student bill. But it was strictly student-led. I um, recruited uh, six other girls. There was a Hardin Charter Prep girl and um, students from Hardin Charter Prep, Class in SAS, Putnam City West. They all helped me bring my vision to life.
0: Yeah, excellent. Erin, you have a freshman in Deer Creek Schools um, did did they participate? Did they have a walkout up there?
3: They did all the way up here in the suburbs where I don't think people think of us as being particularly diverse. The students at Deer Creek High School also joined and walked out. And I was as a parent, I was thrilled to watch all the kids across the city walking out in support of Julius Jones. I thought it was really cool.
0: That's cool. My, I have some nieces and nephews that attend school in Bethany, and I, I got texts that they were going to walk out over there. And, uh, my dad actually went up there to, to walk with them and took some video and sent to me. So it was really exciting to see that happen across, across the city and I well arguably across the state. Uh, Alaysia for you, what was it like to, to be there, to participate and to be on that football field?
2: It was super powerful. I'm not, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for how powerful it would feel. His best friend came and gave a speech, Jimmy Lawson, and that especially had a huge impact on our students. Our students really got to understand how severe the situation is and really get to understand that he did walk our halls and he was one of us. And so for me, I just felt so accomplished and happy to be a part of something so big and so special.
0: Were you all still on the football field or outside when the news broke that the governor had um, had changed his sentence?
2: So we walked out on Wednesday, Thursday, well, yes, Thursday, I was at the Capitol, but our students decided to not go to school the next day if Stid didn't answer us. And so that's how that came about. Pretty much attendance was low that next day because all of us, well, majority of us were at the Capitol that day. And that's where we found were when we found out
0: okay well i'll change my question then what was it like for you to be at the capitol then when that news came out
2: way 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 so much more powerful than just being because you have all different types of people from all different types of places different schools different peach preachers there's like people who are off the streets who came to support julius people who know little to nothing there was just a bunch of different types of people and it was so powerful and so special and really emotional especially because as we found out we were praying we were in prayer we were singing and then someone just randomly yelled out like he commuted it and we were all just really celebrating and really happy and emotional
0: yeah yeah Aaron, did i I understand your child wasn't able to to walk out because they were in a spanish test right um and sometimes that's the way it goes right like i was unable to attend some uh, events this week because i had other obligations uh, as heartbreaking as that is I, have you talked to your your children about uh, what happened this week and and how have they connected to it
3: yeah it's been interesting so my son's a freshman he's 15 and my daughter's 13 and they've both been um very compelled by this story and moved by the situation. And um, my son was really upset that he was in the middle of this test when their students decided to walk out. I don't think that they had as um, organized a plan as Alaysia did at her school. So it was kind of a spur of the moment. And he was texting me about, it's going to happen any minute. It's going to happen any minute. And then he was in the middle of a test and he couldn't go. Um, But there is something powerful, I think, in these students, um, even young students who recognize that they have a part to play in affecting um, the decisions of our leaders. And and I think that when you all collectively act, it's really beautiful and it's inspiring to the rest of us.
0: Yeah, Alaysia, it sounds like Deer Creek schools need some some organizing done up there so they know how to do these kind of events in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and speaking of the future, Alasia, how has this, your experience this week changed you, Um, and and how has it changed or affected your relationship, I'll say to politics and just to community organizing in general?
2: Me personally, it's really woke me up. It's made me see how corrupted and broken our criminal justice system is. It's made me wanna be more a part of everything going on here in Oklahoma, and not just in Oklahoma, but worldwide. It's really, as a young person, you kind of have to really wake up. And there has to be somebody that's like, well, hey, other kids, this is this is the real, and this is what's going on, and we need to be more involved to, to help move others' hearts.
0: Aaron, have your children expressed some kind of similar sentiment?
3: Yeah, I think um, the idea that they could participate in an important event that might have a difference maybe in um even in saving someone's life, I think is really eye-opening and I hope life-changing. I hope that, you know, for the rest of their life this has an impact on their vision of themselves and what they can be a part of and how and how they can work together. Um, they they grew up with me employing folks who were transitioning out of the criminal justice system in a business that we owned in Bricktown. It's not open anymore, but um, that experience totally changed me and, and helped me realize how broken our justice system is and the reform that is needed. Um, and Julius is a terrible example of how things can go terribly wrong. Um, and so we are thankful for what happened yesterday. We're thankful for these students who stepped up. Um, we're thankful for kids like Alasia who recognize their connection, um, as a fellow John Marshall student and, um, those, those things all matter and it takes all of us and it takes incremental action and it takes time, but we, we can change the system.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Aaron, this week you and I have had a few other planning calls unrelated to the Julius Jones case uh, about an event that we are coordinating on coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks on December first. That's a, a film screening or a watch party, if you will. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about
2: that?
3: I would love to because I'm I'm really eager to get to watch this documentary. So there's been so much conversation recently about public school in general, but also the way we're talking about history and the things that we are allowing our students to discuss and to process. And I think parents like me have a lot of questions. I think history class looks really different for kids today than it did when, when we were students. And and I think it should, but I think that is also causing some folks to have some concern and some fear. And so I believe this watch party is going to give us an opportunity to see what's happening in real life in classrooms across our country as they talk about the civil war and slavery and what we look like today because of our history. And I think it's gonna give us a great opportunity to talk about um, how our schools should be engaging with our students on these really hard topics. So I'm really looking forward to that. I hope people will join us.
0: Yeah, and so this, is a, a, a watch party or a screening of a documentary called Civil War, subtitle, or Who Do We Think We Are? Uh, and it's a documentary from executive producer Brad Pitt, uh, a native Oklahoman, or at least someone who has connections to Oklahoma. I feel like anyone who walks through our state, we, we try to claim as <laughs> our own. But regardless, the film is, uh, it's from NBC Films, and it's about how the Civil War is taught differently across the united states right so depending on where you grow up uh, you may get a a different version of history and that i think is concerning right because there's there's some uh you know semblance of truth in history here and we and we want to present i think everybody wants our schools to teach truth (laughs) right like in history in mathematics in science whatever it is uh and so for this event as a the Civil War being a uniquely American experience, an American event, something that's so, um, I don't know, misconstrued or is taught so differently. Um, I've seen the film. It's very compelling. It's It doesn't really push any like specific narrative about the war. It really talks about how we teach it and, and maybe why that is. So I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, listeners, that event will be on December 1st. Uh, at 6 p.m. at the Tower Theater in Oklahoma City. You can go to our website, uh, let'sfixthis.org, or our social media feeds and find links to register. It's free, but seats are limited. We expect it will be um, uh, pretty crowded, so uh, be sure to reserve your seats and invite your friends as soon as you can. Um, before we go, Alaysia, I had one more question for you, uh, and that question is, for anyone else. I, kn- I think most of our listeners are adults, but I know many of them listen to this in the car with their kids. Um, and so if for the kids out there who might be listening to this, what is your advice or your words of encouragement for them who who may have seen the events of this week and are also inspired to be more active in the future? What would you say to them?
2: If there's any kids listening, I just want to let you know that If you take a stand, others will follow. There's always someone watching you. There's always someone who's going to be like, oh, maybe she is doing the right thing and they're definitely going to follow you. Never be scared to speak up for yourself, even if it makes an adult mad, even if it makes a, we took the risk of making stick upset and adding, you know, results or like adding fuel to the fire in a way. But, you know, we had to risk that. So take a stand, even if it's going to make adults mad, your friends mad, stand up for what's right, educate yourself and be the heartbeat of your school or your city or just make a difference and really put your personality out there to know that you're going to stand up and you're not going to back down no matter what.
0: That's excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Alaysia. Thank you. Aaron. thank you as well.
3: I enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: All right, and that brings us to the end of our episode. Scott, thanks for being here today. Always. Uh, special thanks to Alasia Smith and Aaron Brewer for that conversation about their involvement, their exposure to um, efforts among youth to advocate for life this week. Uh, very powerful stuff. And I think uh, you know, Alasia's comments at the end there highlight what we say at the end of every episode, and that is, decisions are made by those who show up. And listeners, I hope you will find ways to show up this week. As a quick note, we will be off next week for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, uh, but we'll resume back on December 3rd. In the meantime, hug your friends, hug your loved ones, get boosted if you haven't already, and uh, watch a good episode of The West Wing, man. Right? It's on right now. Are you watching it already? Oh, hot dog. It's on in the other room.
1: What kind of day has it been?
0: That's an appropriate episode. All right, folks, have a good week.